This podcast is sponsored by Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Listen for more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. We're so glad that you joined us today. My name is Todd Pruitt. As always, I am joined by my co-host, Carl Truman. Um, I'm pastor of a PCA church in Virginia. Uh, Carl teaches at uh, Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. And uh, we're so delighted that you chose to be with us today. We're excited about today's program. We're excited about every program. But um, we were uh, just talking with our guest a little while ago, and Carl and I have discussed uh, our guest's uh, uh, latest book and how enthusiastic we have uh, been about it. Um, it addresses a subject of perennial concern uh, for all people, um, and that is uh, suffering. And uh, is there hope uh, for those who suffer? And where can we find this hope? Um, it is an excellent book. It's one of my favorite books of the year. And I've already had the chance to get it in the hands of some people in my church who are being helped by it. Uh, and our guest is the author, uh, Mark Talbot. Mark Talbot is a professor at uh, Wheaton uh, College, where he teaches uh, philosophy. And this is a subject, and I want to kind of have him unpack this for us in just a moment, but this is a subject that is near and dear uh, to his heart. And you can tell that this is a topic that he deals with a lot and has dealt with from his own personal experience. The title of the book is When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering in Scripture. It is volume one in what's going to be a series, and uh, I'm eagerly looking forward to the completion of this series because volume one has been excellent. Um, Mark Talbot, thank you so much for being with us today. Good to be here, Todd. Now, two questions. First of all, why did you write the book and where does the title come from? What, 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 what initially spurred you to write the book and where does the title come from? What spurred me to write the book was the fact that I lost a student to suicide a um, little over 10 years ago. I won't give an exact date, so it uh, uh, is less possible for people to know who he was. But I lost a student to suicide in a rather grisly manner, and uh, I had been talking to his parents before he, in fact, took his life about the depression that he had, and uh, after he committed suicide, they just had all sorts of questions. They have been strong Christians their whole lives. And it struck me that I really needed to set down another project that I was working on and work on this project. And the title, When the Stars Disappear, where does that come from? It comes from Acts 27 and 28. 
uh, using it as a metaphor. When Paul and Luke and others were crossing the Mediterranean Sea in order to appear in Rome, and of course they ended up in a gigantic storm and were told that the sun and the moon and all the stars disappeared for over two weeks. And that strikes me as exactly the sort of thing that can happen when we uh, face profound suffering, which I end up defining in the book as experiencing something so deep and disruptive that it dominates our consciences and threatens to overwhelm us mm. and quite often tempts us to lose hope that our lives can ever be good again. This first volume is dealing with especially Naomi and Job and Jeremiah and the way that they suffered profoundly. Yeah. We're recording this, Mark, during the midst of the, the ongoing COVID crisis, pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things I, I did earlier on during this time was I, I looked at some of the old liturgies, uh, Book of Common Prayer, uh, how they approach the issue of, of illness and suffering. And I was very struck by the, by the today's standards, rather unpastoral approach to suffering in these things, in that there was a sort of sense of, you know, we pray for X who's ill, you know, teach him through this time of judgment that he's sort of, you know, undeserving sinner and, and prepare him for the judgment that he's about to plunge into if he doesn't recover. Uh, today, that would be seen as, yeah, I find it hard to imagine somebody at a seminary passing a pastoral theology exam with that kind of answer. Uh, and yet that was not unexceptional. In, in times past. Do you think that there are particular pathologies about the world in which we live today that has made suffering perhaps more of a problem than it historically has been? Yes. And in fact, I think the pathologies come out of certain advances to some degree that we've had in Western society. I just wrote a little piece for Desiring God um, that, that's dealing with suffering. And I opened with C.S. Lewis's statement in his introductory piece on Athanasius's incarnation of the Word of God, uh, that in uh, every age, there are certain things that an age is good at and certain things that they're bad at. And in our age in the West, we are just not good about confronting suffering and thinking our way through it and being able actually to welcome it. Interesting. So you think we have a our approach to suffering is we have to defeat it, we have to overcome it. Whereas I think at points in your book, you talk uh, almost in the language of, of embracing yes. suffering and rather than sort of confronting it. Could you sort of expand a little bit on that for us? Yeah. Uh, what I found in my own case, I had an accident when I was 17 and was paralyzed uh, partially from the waist down. What that has done to me ever since is that it has kept me focused on God. I fell about 50 feet off a Tarzan-like rope swing. And I will mention in some of the pieces I've written that uh, when I hit the ground, it was as if all sorts of distractions fell away. And that is exactly what happened and what has continued happening. And I found that with all of the kinds of suffering that I've been through, and in some ways my accident is... Um, almost negligible compared to some of the others. I found that uh, ultimately it not only brings me closer to our Lord, but it gives me a way of being able to help others. Uh, I mentioned in a piece called Broken Wholeness that uh, the sooner that we can get to the place 
that we end up showing the same sort of steadfast love to others that God has shown to us and that we've started to know in our suffering, the sooner we can do that, the more likely we are to find our suffering to have meaning and to be thankful for it. Mark, Carl and I were talking earlier today about the whole issue of, of suffering from the grand scale of, of evil in the world to these very personal battles with, with sorrow and suffering and sickness that so many of us go through, that all of us go through from one degree or another, is the thing that we're asked about probably more often than any other single subject um, from people. And one of the things that you do in this book is to remind us that there's not just a, a category for suffering, but we're promised that we will suffer. And that from directly from our Lord, we're promised that there's even a special category for Christians to suffer even more. And you make the point, and this is an incredibly important point, that not only are we told we're going to suffer along with the rest of the world, but there's even a level of suffering that we're going to go through simply because we are Christians, whether it's that suffering that builds our faith that God takes us through or the suffering that comes at the hands of persecutors, that kind of thing. That's an incredibly important point. Particularly, I still talk with brothers and sisters who struggle with the whole idea of, but I prayed that this wouldn't happen. How, how could it have happened? You know, as though, as though Jesus promised us anything other than that. It seems to me that's tremendously important. It seems to me that we need to realize that um, we are not God's special favorites in such a mm -hmm. way that he's going to give us a pass on suffering. Mm -hmm. And that, as it says in Philippians 129, uh, for he has granted to you or given to you uh, the gift of faith and the gift or grace of suffering. And we need to realize that seen in the right light, suffering uh, can easily become that. In the second book, I end up trying to define what suffering is. I don't do it in the first book. And what I want to say in the second book is that suffering is anything which strikes us as unpleasant or harmful enough that we'd like it to end. Now, I'm taking that largely from Hebrews 12 where you've got this talk about the unpleasantness of God's discipline. So suffering is whatever is unpleasant or harmful enough that we'd like it to end. Within that framework, if we look at our daily lives, our daily lives include suffering, and then you have to go back to Genesis 3, and you have to realize that God increased the amount of suffering in the world uh, when he talked about the dooms of the serpent and of the woman, and for the man, the cursing of the ground. Uh, and yet he did that for our good. We are supposed to be tired at the, uh, mm. at the end of a long day of hard work. And that is a kind of mild suffering that is supposed to remind us that the world is now not the way that it's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not home yet. Yes. And we're desperately trying to make this place home, and it just can't be which is what I try to go in, uh, into in the epilogue of uh, yeah. this first volume with regard to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob right. and the fact that they never inherited the land that God had promised to them. And it made them look up for a city that has not yet arrived. Yeah. In the early part of the bookmark, you focus on three particular biblical books, uh, Ruth, Job, book of Jeremiah. Could you outline for the listeners the distinctive things that those three books allow you to draw out? Yeah, really good question. 
Um, with the book of Ruth, it is the way in which Naomi um, had to handle having lost her husband and her two sons in a foreign land, because, of course, they had left Bethlehem when there was a famine in Bethlehem, and uh, she had lost them in Moab. She, if I am right, now, Dan Block isn't sure that I'm right on this one. Uh, (laughs) uh, He and I um, uh, say, well, we're not quite sure. But if I am right, I don't think that Naomi ever lost her faith in God's goodness. Because it seems to me that as she came back into Israel, as she came back to the promised land, it's obvious that she's coming back there with Ruth with the idea being that God is going to be good to them. And from the end of the first chapter on, you see God's goodness in the way that Boaz responds to Ruth and all the rest of that. And so it seems to me that with Naomi, we've got someone who, while she suffered profoundly, Depending on how you interpret the Hebrew, it may be that when she got back to Bethlehem and the women in Bethlehem said, is this Naomi? They said it because they couldn't recognize her because she had been so transformed by her grief. Maybe, it's not clear that that's so, maybe it was delighted surprise. But in any case, she was transfigured in many ways, and yet it seems that she didn't quite lose her faith. She thought that her life would never again be good, but she didn't think that God wouldn't be good to Ruth and the rest of her relatives. With regard to Job, the remarkable thing in Job, of course, is that most of us don't read carefully after the first two chapters and maybe the last chapter, what goes on in that book. And just uh, the way that Job loses all hope. And he says, my eye will never again see good. And what I try to point out with both Ruth and uh, with Naomi and with Job, is that, in fact, their despair at ever knowing good again in this life proved to be false. Mm-hmm. That over the long run, God showed them good again in this life. Now, the difference with Jeremiah is that he never experienced uh, a time of peace and good in this life. A total of four people in the whole book who uh, are, in a sense, kind and good to him. And as several people have mentioned, Paul House among others, Jeremiah reads as, uh, as uh, the sort of narrative that you get from people who have been tortured, who have been mistreated. We don't even get record of his death at the end of the book. It just breaks off. And after you get past chapter 20, as you'd all know, once you're past chapter 20, it, uh, it isn't a chronological account. And so what we have is we have someone who suffered tremendously and in 20 gets very close to blasphemy in uh, cursing the day of his birth. And um, uh, some people like Abraham Heschel think that he actually was accusing God of having raped him. Uh, I think that's a little too strong, but he's, he's awfully upset with God. And yet in chapter 21, which has another pasture in it, as does chapter 20, but is a different one. It's at least 15 years later, and in fact, Jeremiah has his faith back. And from then on, Jeremiah is faithful despite how hard his life is. So it seems to me that it's awfully important for us to say to Christians, you know, in most cases, probably you're going to get through this and you're going to see the good that God has tendered you through the suffering that you've had. 
but it may not be true in every case. And if it doesn't happen, that's, a not, that's not a reason for giving up your hope in God. Yeah. You, um, you spend some time appropriately with Naomi um, in this. And uh, of course, the bitterness that she went through. And I, and I, I rather agree with you about ha- having preached through Ruth. I, I tend to take your um, uh, understanding of, of, of her continued confidence that God was still good. And one of the reasons why I, I, I landed there was that her bitterness uh, was due to the fact that she still knew God was good and she couldn't understand why she wasn't getting some of that because she she did have this conviction that God was good. If she believed that God, if she'd lost all of her faith, I think her bitterness would have been assuaged somewhat, but she 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 That's had really this belief. She had this belief that, that God was, was good and she wasn't tasting of it. And yet, when we get to the end of the of of the account, I wonder if you would just kind of unfold that for folks and 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 how the end of that book, which I think is extraordinary with what's going on with Naomi there, mm-hmm. um, how, how that how her story gives the sufferer hope today. I wonder if you would just unpack that a moment. Well, one of the things that I point out is that uh, steadfast love is central to the story of Ruth. You have Naomi's steadfast love in the first chapter when she tries to dissuade her, fa- her, uh, her daughters-in-law from coming with her. Uh, to back to Bethlehem because she isn't sure it'll be better for them. Mm-hmm. You've got Ruth show her steadfast love by saying, no, I'm going with you. Uh, I'm going to die where you, where you die. Your God will be my God and all this sort of stuff. We get Boaz obviously showing steadfast love. Kesed, of course, in the Hebrew. And as we work our way through the book, what we find is that God works through the people whom he has changed. And as I mentioned, Ruth doesn't say much at all. Ruth just acts the way that she's supposed to act. And Boaz doesn't say much. He's pretty careful with his words. But what you find as you go through the book is that there's this steadfast love that each of the human characters have for each other, and that is even shown by the people in Bethlehem in uh, the way that they celebrate when um, Naomi is able to put her grandson in uh, her arms, they, they say, more or less, it's Naomi's come back to life again. Yeah. It's interesting that God is mentioned as the doer of anything only twice in the whole book. First chapter, very early on when he ends the famine. Last chapter, when he gives Ruth conception. Other than that, God isn't mentioned as the one who's doing these things. He works through his people. Yeah, yeah, that's good. What about uh, the sort of practical liturgical implications of this, Mark? You, you spend some time inevitably talking about the Psalms in, in your work, and you know, anybody with even a passing familiarity with the Psalter knows that l- lamentation is uh, one of the, the significant uh, themes in Psalms, and I think in, in I think Psalm eighty-eight, there is other than the use of the covenant name right at the start, right, it's, right. it's completely bleak, and it ends with you know the God having taken all your friends away. It's right, it's, right. Uh, <laughs> to, to what extent do you think it's important 
Yeah, this is a leading question because I want you to answer in the affirmative. To what extent do you think? Uh, to what extent do you think psalm singing is important in? in <laughs> I think it's tremendously important, and uh, not only singing but reciting the psalms and reciting uh, the whole corpus of psalms, because of course there are more psalms of lament than there are of anything else yeah. in uh, in the psalms. Uh, and it's interesting, the difference between the private laments or the personal laments and the corporate laments, uh, all of the personal laments, except for Psalm 88, you're right on this one, Carl, that it's only with Psalm 88 that we don't at some point get an affirmation that God is going to be good to the psalmist who was lamenting. With the corporate laments, you often do not get that. And in fact, uh, as a couple of commentators say, more or less what that suggests is that the life of faith is inevitably one of tension. It's inevitably a life that is difficult um, because we are going to face suffering that um, uh, is going to rock us to some degree. It's going to happen. Uh, and our business in that situation is to persist, to speak to God uh, to sing to God um, what has been hard for us, um, uh, while usually also singing of the fact that we will praise him when he brings us through it, but we'll praise him even if he doesn't. That's a great answer, That's Mark. Good. Well, it's been wonderful to to have you on the, the show, Mark. This is this is a remarkable book. It's volume one is is very short. And my one criticism, my one criticism is wow, it could have been four times as long, but it is going to be much longer because yeah. there are another three volumes to come. Oh, and uh, I would just say I want to interrupt you, Carl. As a you're pastor interrupting me. As a pastor, I appreciate part of the suffering I have to embrace. <laughs> as a pastor, I appreciate it because so many people are intimidated by books that are thicker than that. And this was an easy one to put in people's hands yeah, yeah. and then go, okay, I can read that. So that's the very I was, reason I split it up into yeah. four volumes. I had split it up into two and then thought, no, that's no good. And went back yeah. to Crossway and said, let's make it four because yeah. I wanted the first one to be for people who were suffering profoundly and yeah. be short enough yes. that they wouldn't mind picking it up. But the second one, Carl, for what it's worth, is twice <laughs> as long. <laughs> That's and who fantastic. knows where we go from there, Carl? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say this is, uh, for me, it's the best Christian book I've read for, for quite some time. Uh, I, uh, Crossway sent me a copy. I picked it up and I started to sort of flick through it and, and I was just hooked. Uh, I, I think that the brilliant blend of uh, narrative and of theology it's it's quite quite remarkable could you just before we close mark perhaps outline for us you know what what is the projection for the next three volumes you know this is this is my gateway drug to mark talbot now i'm hooked i need, I need bigger fixes what are the next three volumes going to to bring in their wake 
the next one is called uh, Give Me Understanding That I May Live, and it is on the full Christian story. So it deals with creation, rebellion, redemption, and consummation, and spells them out in detail. Uh, my idea, of course, is that we need personal stories uh, and the stars that guide us in our personal stories in order to know how to move forward in life, uh, but we need a, um, an overarching story. And basically, in our time, there are only two. There's the bottom-up story that is atheistic evolution. We can hang on to a lot of evolutionary concepts, providing we keep God in the right place with regard to them. But atheistic evolution says, no, no, it's all by chance. And then there's the top-down story that says that God, uh, with his own purposes that he must reveal to us, has made us for a specific reason. And so the second book is dealing with all of that stuff. Uh, the third book is dealing with language and then with providence. And so the first half of it is dealing with the fact that to be persons, we have to have language because otherwise we couldn't get ourselves oriented in the world properly. We can't understand things without language. We need language in order to know um, uh, how to promise each other things, how to look toward the future and so on. That's the first chapter. The second chapter is dealing with God's word as uh, that which is to become our primary language. As, as you may know, um, they have found that if they test bilingual speakers in each of their languages, and they have to do this extremely quickly so that people don't have time to think about it, but if you have somebody, they've done this with people with Hebrew and one of the Arabic dialects, and if they, uh, if they run them through these things really, really quickly, that the people value different things in each of the languages. Hmm. And so hmm. it seems to me that what we want to say to Christians is, look at Scripture is supposed to become your primary language. Your secondary language remains tremendously important. It isn't that Pentecost ends up reversing Babel. Instead, it redeems it because we will have people of all tribes and nations and tongues and so on and so forth in the eschaton, and each with their secondary languages at that point will have, other, have things to say about God's glory that nobody else will. So those are the first two chapters. The next two are on providence. Final volume is on faith, hope, and love in the eschaton. Wow. 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 That's going to be fun. That sounds tremendous. Yeah. I, can't, I can't wait. <laughs> See, perhaps you'd be willing to come back on and, uh, uh, and talk about the would. next volume. That would be wonderful. Uh, particularly that linguistic. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah, That's yeah, I know hardly anybody who's saying that stuff. I've got part of that, by the way, Carl, out of uh, Charles Taylor. Of course. I was going to say Charles Taylor. I was thinking, thinking this is Herder, this is the Romantics, yep. this yep. is meat and drink to my soul. So yeah, looking yeah. forward to that. Yeah. That's tremendous. Great. So, That's good. Well, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show, Mark. And again, commend to our listeners this book, When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering in Scripture. Volume one of a projected tetralogy, uh, which I, I think if this first volume is anything to go by, will be a cornerstone of any Christian or pastor's library relative to thinking theologically and pastorally about the issue of suffering. And it doesn't matter how great life is for you now. If you don't live long enough, you're going to suffer through death. If you do live long enough, you're going to suffer through the loss of loved ones and yes. the slow breakdown yes. of your own body. Suffering is not something we can avoid. We can pretend it's not going to happen to us. 
but ultimately suffering is going to come calling. And I think it was in D.A. Carson's uh, little book, How Long, O Lord, he made the point that, you know, if you're reading this book because you're suffering, you're too late. You really, <laughs> you really need, you yeah. need to, as you would say, Mark, I guess you need to, to learn the language Yes. Before you land in that foreign country of suffering. So, yes. I yes. commend this book and uh, the subsequent volumes uh, to all of you. If any of you would like a chance to win uh, a free copy of this book, please go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, where you have a chance to enter. And uh, if, uh, if providence shines upon you, uh, you will get a free copy of this book. If Providence does not shine upon you, buy a copy. Buy two copies. Then you can give one to your pastor and read one uh, yourself. In the meantime, all that's left for me is to thank you for joining us. Thank our guest, Mark, for giving us up his time. Wish you well for the next week and look forward to being with you next time. There's a little black spot on the sun today Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. She should date my son. Anybody I suggest him is automatically crossed off the list. So I'd have to do this very, very carefully. Say, say she's a beautiful girl. She's very kind, very tenderhearted and really funny. Well, his biggest problem at the moment, he said to me, dad, I'm earning so much money. I don't know what to do with it. (laughs) So, um, you know, I've said to him, and you don't have a girlfriend, just stand outside church saying, woe is me. I've got too much money. That's it. You'll be fine. That's unbelievable. Here's the problem, ladies. I have an English accent and I've got more money than I know what to do with. And I I drive a Mini with (laughs) Union Jack wing mirrors, you know. There you go. (laughs) Hello, I'm Jonathan Master, president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. When I look back at what first drew me to the Alliance, it was Dr. Boyce speaking about the great need for reformation and a return to historic Reformed confessions, biblical preaching, and thoughtful worship. Given the changes in our culture since then, that need is even greater today. The church today needs bold proclamation of sound doctrine, clear teaching of the Bible, and worship that is God-honoring and full of reverence and joy. At Greenville Seminary, we aim to meet this need by equipping men for pastoral ministry, men who are courageously committed to the truth, who are 
Christ-like in their character, committed to prayer, and called to be ministers of God's Word in local churches. If you're interested in learning more about Greenville Seminary, either as a prospective student or as an interested friend, visit us at gpts.edu. Greenville Seminary, equipping preachers, pastors, and churchmen for Christ's kingdom among the nations.